0: And through problem-based learning, we'll get the kids involved. So they watch me do something uh, on screen, and then they do it, or, or a similar enough version of that in the classroom. So they practice exploration under the guidance of their teachers.
1: Welcome to Learning Unboxed, a conversation about teaching, learning, and the future of work. This is Annalise Corbin, Chief Goddess of the PASS Foundation and your host. We hear frequently that the global education system is broken, Welcome to the next episode of Learning in Box. This is Annalise Corbin, your host, and I'm very excited today to have with me two amazing guests to talk with us about a really cool and awesome program to get kids excited about science. So uh, today we're going to jump right in with my guests, uh, Mike Schott and Josh Bernstein. So uh, welcome to the two of you.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having us.
1: So just as a bit of background, so Mike Schott um, is actually the Director of Community Development for Kaufman Development here in Columbus, Ohio. And in that hat, um, he's responsible for all kinds of investor relations, business development, and community relations. And he's a huge advocate in the community in Columbus, Ohio. His newest project is something called the Gravity Project, which I'm hoping we actually get to talk about again on another episode because it's got some amazing educational tight-ins. The other hat that Mike Wears. And the reason that we have him here today is because he's um, also a, a head of or a trustee for a private family foundation, the Harold C. Schott Foundation, which is headquarters in Cincinnati, Ohio. And through that work, he is involved in a lot of Ohio and national-based philanthropic efforts, uh, To uh, very important as it relates to uh, a variety of different ways we can change the world. So we really are welcome that voice today. So thank you for that, Mike. Joining Mike is Josh Bernstein, and Josh Bernstein is an explorer, an educator, a traveler, a storyteller, an all-around cool guy with amazing ideas and experiences. He's also um, heavily involved in a variety of broadcasts, television, um, and a variety of different documentary programs. So you'll recognize uh, Josh's name from a variety of programs um, over time. Josh is also the founder of something called Explorer at Large, which is an amazing program um, that, again, just gets kids all excited about the possibility of science. So welcome to both of you.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having us.
1: So we want to just dive right in today, Um, pun fully intended in Josh's case. Um, So Josh, actually I would like to start with you to sort of set the context for us. So, Explore at Large is a program, and um, PASS is very fortunate to have been involved um, over the last year or so with some of this program as it relates to just trying to backfill gaps around student curiosity, tenacity, love of science, especially um, when it relates to the way we currently learn science traditionally in school. It's just so not functional in many ways, and a lot of kids are missing out. So tell us, what's the 100,000-foot version of Explore at Large?
0: I would say it comes, it boils down to two words, courage and curiosity. The courage to be an explorer, to want to go around the corners and over the horizon to see what's there, to have those questions. And the curiosity is lends itself to the scientific mindset, problem-based learning. Uh, you know, Einstein famously said he has no special talent, except he's very, very curious. That passionate curiosity is what drives lifelong learning. So our hope with Explorer at large is to get Children as adults as well, based on my work in TV. But children now uh, who become passionately curious and courageous and take a leap into education.
1: And so, given the fact that you want to instill that, why why step out of what you're doing all the time? And you you for, spent many years um, being involved with and directing a lot of outdoor and wilderness education. You're clearly really intimately involved in that whole space of curiosity and exploration and mm-hmm. a lot of the hands-on applied stuff, that certainly at the PASS Foundation, we advocate for. So why shift from the traditional things that you're constantly doing into a very specific program opportunity?
0: From I think looking back, it was a, uh, a natural progression of uh, both skills and opportunities. So when I ran uh, the survival school, which was my first career after college, I was there for 25 years out in the West, in Utah and Colorado, educating um, adults from all around the world to come out on the trail for up to a month where we would teach survival skills, native wisdom, learn to do more with less. You know, the more you know, the less you need to carry. And so that that curriculum, that sort of immersive experiential education perspective was fantastic for me because I am more of a kinetic hands-on mm-hmm. learner and therefore teacher. But what I discovered when uh, when I was approached at a certain point, uh, because of the sort of survival phenomenon that happened in the media, our school uh, benefited tremendously. And then the networks were asking, as the front person, would I be interested uh, in in making the shift to television? And, and as an educator, I had like zero interest. Right. I was like, no, I'm not an actor. <laughs> I was never in theater. I don't care to be on stage or in the spotlight. But as an educator, for me to take an audience of what was 10 or 15 clients, and expand that to now several million people to watch a show. It's like, well, that's a pretty amazing opportunity. Mm-hmm. And so that that got me into the, the television networks, the History Channel and Discovery Channel. And then what shifted into education, specifically in formal education, was how do we move the needle around the world? If I'm going to be in 200 countries, which I'm grateful for, um, through through these documentaries, how do we actually change the world in the education? And you have to get kids. Younger, like Mm -hmm. the demo of TV is an older demo that they want you to buy insurance or cars, (laughs) But, but how do you actually, how do you ignite passions? And at what point do you have the most impact? And for us, it's really starting at like age four. Like, how do you get to kindergartners and like that? So it's an upstream solution. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we can solve the problems later in college and connect to career paths. But if you can get more kids to fall in love with these paths, becoming oceanographers or volcanologists or whatever, like everyone, every little kid wants to be a dinosaur hunter or an astronaut. But somehow along the way, education, uh, I think, diminishes that passion and curiosity. And so my goal was like, wait a minute, if I'm going to have an audience and a skill set let me see if i can focus that in schools which is where i explore at large was born
1: right right so so mike how how on earth do you get in the middle of this kind of crazy idea. Where where is that? Where's the original synergy that led to a conversation that ultimately gets to sort of the, the the role that you have in Explorer at large? So where's the connector? Because that's the thing. I mean, the reality of school or education, teaching and learning thought about very differently is literally about what do I do differently? And the folks that are listening are out there contemplating with a whole array of partners and available resources or lack of resources. And and the thing that everybody wants to know is how, how do we do some tiny aspect or how do we get that thing into our community? So what do you have to do with this?
2: <laughs> Great question. Uh, there's probably a short, a long, and a very long answer to that. Um, <laughs> the middle answer to that is I've been very blessed at a young age to have the opportunity to play a philanthropic role in this community and and nationally. And over the last five years in that role, I've really tried to hone my focus a little bit. Like, what should I be focused on to help impact my community and ideally scale some of those initiatives nationally or internationally? And education and youth development in general has been a gigantic passion of mine since I was a child, really. But in these last five years, I've just sort of Explore the landscape of what it means to to make a difference in, in the world of, of children and how they're sort of brought up through the education system. And then what wraparound services can you add just to add a, a lot of exposure opportunities and a, a variety of different ways for kids to to learn about themselves and the world. Outside of the traditional education system, so we 've been testing and iterating with that with various organizations here locally, from the Boys and Girls Club, which is more of an after school program to junior achievement, which is more of an in school program uh, and several other both established nonprofits and and early stage programs. I would say explore at large was kind of the synergy of everything I became passionate about over the last five years and fit in with my general, I would call it, investment thesis, philanthropic mm-hmm. investment thesis, which is a very unique collaboration of highly talented teams, which is what Explore at Large is, which I'm sure we'll get into mm-hmm. soon. Clear, clearly, it's very innovative and impactful now that we've had a chance to study it, which are two very key metrics for me that I look at mm-hmm. at any, uh, for any investment. And I wanted to just see like, what, what would happen if we expose kids to different pathways in the world. And I know we're early in the process of testing this, but I have a worldview of you become, the, you become a product of what you're exposed to over mm-hmm. your lifetime. And the more we can expose kids early to, to things that they may never have had exposure to, I believe that provides them with a robust Amount of opportunities throughout mm-hmm. their
1: life. Mm-hmm. I would agree with that, and we see that certainly every single day it passes, and we advocate for it over and over again. That you know, in addition to sort of changing the the, the global paradigm around, I can't be what I can't see. Right? We we always want to add in, you can't do what you don't know. And so, to your point, we have to be able to to show kids what's possible, and that's that's part of the beauty of it. So, Josh, give us give us a rundown. So, you know. You, you conceived this idea, and, and now it, we're, we're actually getting to the point, you have to do something with this. So, so walk our listeners through a little bit around pulling together. Josh mentions the team um, is really, really important you know, as we go through. And so as Mike mentioned, that team ultimately was going to be one of the designing factors as, as a funder and a philanthropist that you have the right folks in and around that. So w- what does that look like? How do you decide the team? And then how do you decide where to go with this thing?
0: Uh, so there's there are three primary participating groups in Explorer at large. The, the the let me back up a second. So we have an ecosystem, and and this ecosystem of learning is um generated pr- first from videos. Mm-hmm. Like, so I, I'm a I'm a firm believer that if you can't engage an audience, then there can be no education. So the first step is engagement, and for kids these days, really everyone it's, it's sort of an epidemic. But but kids are locked into their screens. So we know that the kids are watching. Their phones mm-hmm. uh, and smartphones are becoming just more and more ubiquitous and ever present. So so it's OK. Well, if we're going to have to convert an educational mindset into the space of a phone, uh, we have to engage an audience. So the production piece, the videos, which you know, where I'm coming from as a professional. So let's say you take a if you look at a one hour documentary, there's always that one act. Hooks you. Like that's the teas that the networks would play. So if you're rappelling into a volcano or diving with right. sharks or do whatever that whatever that commercial tease is. So I say, well, what if the show, the five minute piece, was just that? So it's a five minute story which I host, where I meet an expert, ask a question, get hands on kinetic. So so we would go to, for example, we would go to a zoo and talk to an animal expert about like some quandary, like how do you take care of lions? Right. Like lions are made for Africa, and here they are in Ohio. So how do you care for them? Which is in and of itself a fascinating study in biology and 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 nutrition. Um but then we we would bring in, in addition to the production piece, that's the first team, production of content. Then there's how do you wrap it in such a way that the teachers can effectively use it, given everyone has standards and concerns around education and especially in formal education. Is it better in the classroom? Is it better after school? So that's where the PAST Foundation mm-hmm. comes into the picture, which is how we met.
1: Right. Because I was right. looking
0: for an instructional design team that could take the content that I create. My production company and wrap it in such a way that's teacher friendly right. and and then effective for students. And the third part of the tripod uh, is research and, and evaluation. So how do we know it's actually doing that something? And and what we say we want to we want to affect change, but how do we measure that? And so that's where Oregon State University came in and Dr. Martin Storckdeek's team. So so it's, so my team my, my team does the production. Uh, PASS Foundation does the instructional unit design right. and the, and the educational wrapping. And then Martin and his team does the, are we effective? Are we moving the needle and how can we move it more? Right. That's the ecosystem.
1: Yeah, and the ecosystem sets the stage, so it's it's critically important, you know, as a tie for everything together. So, how do you go from this team and this ecosystem, then, um, literally to Columbus, Ohio? And we're going to talk about what happens at scale, but location is important, and you learn some valuable lessons as it relates to <laughs> yeah. location. So, mm-hmm. you know, share those with us.
0: Well, so I live in Washington D.C., and so originally, just out of convenience. I thought we would pilot this in D.C. at DCPS, the public school system there. But, but D.C. is known nationally, if not internationally, for its bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. And after several months of just trying to get down you know, knock down the right doors and get into we, we sat in on classrooms and we figured out what district, but we couldn't get um, the contractual obligations like we couldn't lock it up mm-hmm. before our funders. Uh, Mike included, like we're putting some pressure on. So so our right. funding, you know, this is philanthropically funded through grants. And so the Bezos Family Foundation and the Schott Foundation and others were saying, look, we think that this could be great, but it has to happen now. And so we pivoted because of, honestly, your input when you <laughs> said, look, I know you're struggling in D.C. Why don't you bring this to Ohio? We were already contracted. to you. Right. So I was like, all right, if if Past is going to do this and you have a pipeline into schools, why don't we move it to Ohio? And what's nice about Central Ohio is that it's large enough to have real issues that help us figure out how to problem solve for scale, but small enough that you can move quickly mm-hmm. through the system. So I think that while at the time I was frustrated that DCPS wasn't working with us, we'll come back to them. Yeah, I know that, but, we will, yeah. but, um, but Ohio was was a great pivot for us. And it allowed us to then work more deeply with the Schott Foundation and the Columbus Foundation and other regional partners right. who were excited to say, wait a minute, we can... So Columbus is, is a, it's a, it's a fascinating community of forward-thinking, education, uh, passionate leaders. And so I'm, I'm so grateful that we've ended up here.
1: Yeah, well we're certainly grateful for that um as well and I think just for some context pieces um for our listeners and again resources get posted um, on the website things that we talk about today we will we will dig in and provide those for folks who who want more but um first and foremost um just sort of stress um from Josh's comments you know the the difficulties with getting new programs started in very large urban highly bureaucratic districts is not a knock on D.C. public schools. It's just a very common constraint. Mm-hmm. It takes a lot of time. It's very, very complex. And oftentimes those environments are not the best pilot locations for all the reasons that Josh mentioned. Um, but Mike, that brings us then back to Columbus. And and I remember this very early conversation with Josh around, hey, let's move this thing. And, and my perspective on why move this thing from past foundation to doing the program design is, you know, we are so entrenched in so many schools in around the central Ohio region and um, a multi-state region. But there is more to it than that because Columbus is is a pretty special place when it comes to innovation. Um, and I know that you bump up against that all the time in both the hats that you wear. So why, why from your perspective, why Columbus is a perfect place to pilot something like this?
2: Yeah, great question. I think the tagline is the Columbus way, right? And it's all about collaboration. And Columbus is at a point in its growth as a city, that everyone is still very much arm in arm. Mm -hmm. Let's make our community amazing. And there's different people working in every sector to make that dream a reality. Education has always been a priority for almost every community. But what we're doing here is we're coming at the issue with an open mind and a collaborative approach and testing new things that we may not have been able to test in the Mm -hmm. past. And I believe there's more philanthropic dollars focused on innovative programs that are collaborations uh, now more than ever. And I think collaboration, you know, which is the theme of Columbus, is also the theme of how to get these programs off the ground. It really takes public, private, philanthropic partnerships to make these things work. And with your established network here in Columbus, it was just remarkable to see how quickly we were able to get into that school system, which without that, I don't think we would have you know, made the progress we have in that short of time and believe because of what we've been able to prove. Now, once you've tested the waters here in Columbus, once we know things work, I believe this is a community that will rally around those Mm -hmm. programs and, and help them scale in our community and hopefully beyond.
1: And I think that's one of the things that we see over and over again um, in this community and other communities across the country and around the globe that have a similar mindset. So on the one hand, we are very much about startup and and entrepreneurship and innovation, but on the other hand, we are also very mindful about outcomes and long-term successes, right? So I would like to think that as a community, we're very balanced in that sense, um, which is is it gets to sort of the heart of some of the pieces. So so Josh, as we started to then work on and fleshing out several key components had to come together to make this happen. So one, first and foremost, is obviously the funding that was to really be required to actually go from concept to pilot. And just to be really clear with our listeners, so Josh came to, um, to the project with a set of some pilot videos that we could use to sort of test the process. So could you touch base just a little bit about how we were able to utilize in the pilot Pilot phase. That is the launching point, so that we can talk a little bit about how we designed the program and the curriculum for the pilot to move us from from that point.
0: Sure. Yeah. So so things started. Explorer at large started with an I three grant from the Department of Ed through the Smithsonian Institution. So I said, I was in D C. working right. on this for several years before we made the pivot and came here to Ohio. And and so the Smithsonian and I. We're looking for ways to share the depth and breadth of the Smithsonian through visual content. Right. So I said, all right, this is a great job, right? You've got 19 <laughs> museums and nine research centers and hundreds of millions of artifacts. Let me tell those stories and engage kids. Where we, where that, so that money, the first dollars in created 20 videos. And, and then the question then became, how do we put these videos into classrooms and what are the standards or the curricula that get wrapped around them? And then, and then unfortunately, just for a variety of reasons, things stopped. And and so I was faced with the challenge of like, where do I take this now that we've we've got the videos, but we we can't do it's not just a press and play right. like there's got to be more to it than right. that. So so uh, that's when I reached out to uh, education friendly philanthropic organizations and ultimately the Bezos Family Foundation said, this is interesting, mm-hmm. right? You've, like w- we are very curious to see what happens when this gets wrapped into an instructional pedagogy and then and then placed in classrooms. We will challenge. A, a community to match our funds, and so that's when the Columbus Foundation and the Schott Foundation and Battelle here in Ohio said well we'll we'll match that challenge right like, we'll meet that challenge and we'll put that in the schools here and then pass thanks to like, as Mike said to to your distribution and the and the pipeline you have mm-hmm. in the districts, we got a chance to actually do more than just show videos and that and I think for people who are like yeah, people understand conceptually, oh, there's a video where like we can watch someone for five minutes. Ask an expert a question. So like in these first round of the 20 videos, we selected 11 Correct. that we divided yeah. into three specific instructional units. And let's say for the one on, oh, there's one on waterways, there's one on, on pollination and orchids, and there's one on nutrition. So the nutrition one has the pandas, right? Everyone <laughs> loves the pandas. Everyone
1: loves the pandas. <laughs> so we filmed
0: it at the <laughs> National Zoo. And the question, again, to help uh, you know, uh, to help your audience understand is like, like when you look at pandas, right? The panda bear being a bear should be a carnivore because bears eat meat. But but the panda eats bamboo. So why why does this panda eat bamboo? And how did it adapt morphologically over time to to facilitate that? There's digestive issues. There's adaptations on the teeth. There's adaptations to their, their fingers, the pseudo thumb. So that's the question that I go into the national zoo with, and I meet the expert. In this case, Marty Deary. And Marty would be like, "Yeah, let's walk through the the physiology of the panda. And Here's how we feed the panda, and here's and then and then more fun because this is for kids in school. is like we go into the panda enclosure and and gather their poop, which is you know just say poop and kids are kids engaged. Kids
1: love poop. <laughs> I mean, you can't so, go wrong. Yeah, absolutely. So
0: the the opportunity to tell these stories <laughs> and then to thanks to the funders to wrap them in with it, with educational content and give teachers the ability to connect the stories in the field with with classroom content is is proven to be magical."
1: And it is kind of magical. And I think one of the things that has been the most fun, certainly for us, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more in a minute about the program design, the curriculum component of it, but But just sort of from the outside looking in, one of the things that's really intriguing about this project and certainly why it had so much appeal for us is because the kids become so engaged instantly, right? I mean, one of the beauties of it is you've created this character, the explorer at large, uh, Josh, who all the kids want to be Josh. They want to be just like Josh. They see themselves in you no matter what their background experience because you found a way to make it relatable. The difficult piece in all of this is then how do you take all of those concepts, some of which are pretty complex, and turn it into a nugget that a kindergarten, a third grade, fifth, uh, middle school, and and ultimately later, maybe even at the high school level, can can find appealing and dig into, um, becomes the complex factor.
0: Well, uh, I don't know. I feel like that's that's the spot that I really enjoy. I mean, that's and that's honestly that's what what my skill set. And when it comes to learning the craft of hosting has taught me and I, my job for history and discovery in at Geo has been to, to take complex, culturally important touchstone stories and, and synthesize the questions with experts about mysteries, the Ark of the Covenant, Holy Grail, Lost Cities of the Amazon. How do you make an audience care? And, and, and so then just converting that skill set to an audience of kids. The, the biggest question for me was, would little kids, you know, five year olds, six year olds, eight year olds from impoverished communities connect with this middle-aged white guy i was like can we sell that it was the hat you know well i think the hat represents a a mindset of of exploration and curiosity we call it the explorer hat even though it's a cowboy hat it's not a cowboy thing it's a hat about (laughs) exploration and these kids in the classrooms that we piloted we gave them explorer hats and they put on their hats and they went to the zoo and they went to the like different parks and they fell in love with being an explorer and i remember like in the pilot when when this one Four-year-old black girl looks up to me with her her, her her pink explorer head on. She's like, "I look just like you, Josh." And I'm <laughs> like, "God bless you." Yeah, yeah. You, you do because you're an explorer, right? And 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 that's when I said this can work.
1: Right. You
0: know, yeah. How do we get more kids to fall in love with learning through curiosity and courage?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that when you get to the point that, that the student, the teacher, the school, the community embraces the ethos of the idea that that it can be any participant yeah. um, standing in the shoes or wearing that hat in this case, um, that that's that's the big win.
0: And eventually we'll have other people on camera, not just me. Like so we'll have we'll have. More diversity in yeah. race and ethnicity, and, like, and also skill sets. Where there'll be actual. I'm, I'm a more of a generalist when it comes to my skill set, but but I'll be training. We'll eventually have a contest where mm-hmm. others can have my job.
1: <laughs> I, That's I a, think s- that'll go, go well. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I'm
2: throwing my hat. <laughs> <on that. laughs> <Exactly>. Hat required. <laughs>
1: we, yeah. we all want the hat. Yeah. yeah. So so before we dig into the design and development of the curriculum, so the program to wrap around these uh, amazing, fun videos and these experiences for students, Mike, I want to circle back around uh, to talk about the conversations and the structure that has to take place at the community level. Because again, folks that are listening are trying to figure out that's awesome. Can I bring Explorer at large to my community? A, and the answer is yes. We'll come back to that. Um, but B, if, if for some reason I can't or are there are components of what I'm hearing today tied to another topic or something else that I want to be able to to digest and actually leverage. And I think that's part of the value here. And so, you know, as Explore at Large comes to Columbus, and Explore at Large has to have the seed funding to do and build and orchestrate this pilot. It required, as Josh indicated, multiple partners come to the table. It wasn't one (laughs) lift. And in many ways, in the philanthropic community... That's the preferred way currently to, to to do lots of things is that multiple leverage point. So can you talk about that a little bit and sort of what was, what was your role in the community in trying to sort of push that collaborative agenda around making a pilot here possible?
2: Sure. Happy to expand on that. When I learned that we had the opportunity to bring this here and we had a matching grant hanging in the wings and which is always a very powerful tool. I really highly encourage other funders and other community organizations to think about leveraging matching gifts because it does incentivize action from (laughs) other funders. And we do it a lot. We issue a lot of matches and oftentimes we meet a lot of matches, uh, depending on where we're at with the organization. But I also knew when we were bringing this to Columbus, because it's, a national program. We have great local ties through past, but it was exploring things mm-hmm. elsewhere. Right? How do we bring in here? And I knew we needed to bring other collaborative funders to the table to make this a reality, not just for the pilot, but really for, mm-hmm. for the whole uh, seed and eventually growth stage, both in Columbus and beyond. And that's just part of the ethos of Columbus. But I think it's an ethos of every community. The more people you can bring together to collaborate on the investor side, on the philanthropic side, you know, that is really how you go from just a 10x idea to a 100x idea. Uh, so I, you know, as soon as I got the call that this was a possibility, um, I went to our foundation and, and was able to match some of the funds that were required to to trigger the Bezos family gift. And then I, I knew, luckily, we've had a lot of experience collaborating with the Columbus Foundation, who are incredible partners. Mm-hmm. And I would argue one of the best community foundations in the country, maybe the world. and. So they immediately stepped up within a week or two mm-hmm. and said, we're in. And then Battelle, who's obviously an amazing supporter of the PASS Foundation and, and really just innovation in general in our community, quickly came to the table as well. So it was really just, sort of my I love being a catalyst for things. And if we were just able to be the, the first uh, money in to help catalyze the rest, and then you have this unique group of collaborators that are invested in the project early, then that's, I, I believe, a win for the long term.
1: And it, it also comes down to having a champion. And I think you can't stress that enough. Um, for folks who've listened um, to multiple episodes in the series, uh, you heard Rich Rosen, I think that was episode two, talk specifically about public-private partnership and what that means. And you have to have that champion in the space. So uh, thank you certainly for for being that in this case in the local community. Yeah. So as Mike's you, a great
0: champion. <laughs> Mike
1: is an awesome champion, um, and it you know it, it it's a heavy lift, right? Because you you put a lot out there, right? You're you're not only putting out financial investment, but you're you're also putting out a lot of personal belief and interest in giving something a try and why a local community to do that. So um, again, it's 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 not something that everybody thinks about, but it's oftentimes critical to the success of pilots moving to scale. So on that. note, how do you take the pilot? Not so much at scale, but so as we thought about how best to wrap the programmatic side around this so that we could get the data that we need so you can go back to funders to do bigger pieces so you can ultimately get to scale. Let's talk a little bit, Josh, about the decision-making around what we were going to need to be able to do to demonstrate, to show, to ultimately get to that point. So as we think about, for example, the curriculum component of it, and for our listeners, the way that this works, is um in working with Josh, uh, the past uh, program design team um, really dug into uh, specific sets of the videos. Um, we cross mapped and pulled out the uh, next generation um, science standards um, that were you know, heavily utilized to be able to figure out sort of where things were. And we also tapped into some local resources we thought would make great external learning opportunities for students. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that decision making, Josh, because you played a key role in sort of the selecting of the things that we did.
0: Mm-hmm. Sure. Yes. So just keeping in mind, though, that when we created these videos for the Smithsonian, we did not know what right. was going to happen with them. So now, looking back and with an eye towards our future content, we would create things a little differently. Right. In, in this case, we were creating content to highlight Smithsonian assets. Right. So, we, you know, I said, of course, if we're going to do the zoo, then we're going to do pandas because the, who doesn't? But, um, but we, we knew that these videos... The so 20 videos, some of them didn't apply. Some of them are like, oh, that's a bit of a reach for... We knew we were going to be piloting in the elementary school range, right, so K right. and 3 in this case. We originally wanted K3, 5, and 7, but because our budget had to be more focused, we, we started, let's, let's start at K and build our way up. So kindergartners and third graders would not connect to the more heady, deep space astronomy stories that we did at the Smithsonian Astrophysics Observatory, but they would connect with the stuff at the zoo. So that's when we started figuring out that the... The 20 videos could be pushed into, we just said, okay, we'll take these 11 and these 11 can be uh, further divided into three different instructional units. And then each unit uh, would have two or three videos, typically, mm-hmm. uh, and eight or so activities, right? That would that would um, help teachers bring the content to life. The model, which you can speak to mm-hmm. perhaps more yeah. expertly than I, uh, but the idea is like that. The kids are engaged with the videos, and then the teachers, in a sense, take over advocacy for exploration, and through problem-based learning, we'll get the kids involved. So they watch me do something uh, on screen, and then they do it, or, or a similar enough version of that in the classroom, so they practice exploration under the guidance of their teachers.
1: Exactly. And that the teacher piece was really, really key. And we also know, you know, it passed for, for many years that there's a lot of really amazing programming that exists out in the ecosystem of education. But an awful lot of it goes unused. Um, we hear this over and over again. Oh yeah, you know that's that's a great program, but it's not really usable in the classroom. And and teachers talk about this all the time. And what we've been able to sort of uh, boil down or distill out of that oftentimes is a lack of the teachers as participant in the design and development. And so philosophically, um, PASS Foundation made the decision many many years ago that. Anytime we we're involved with in creating programming, our teachers are a key uh, component of actually Um, creating content, piloting, providing some of the the first bits. So uh, from a context sort of standpoint, um, once the decision was made around which sets of videos that we were going to utilize from the Smithsonian set, created these three instructional units, Uh, the past staff then created a a preliminary set of activities that were, again, standards-driven and age-appropriate that we could then um, bring in groups of teachers who could co-create the final iterations of those for us. And so literally that design team became all-inclusive, right? So it's all-inclusive of uh, Josh as our explorer participating and and providing information and and data into sort of where the topic was and the nuances of those topics with the teachers and the past team creating activities that could then be implemented. And so that process then, again, to your point, uh, Josh, allowed those teachers to have ownership. That's the other thing. And that's a key piece that we have found over and over again. And anytime we're talking about pilot work. So, as the teachers go through and participated, you also had a pretty wonderful opportunity to interact with them at various phases of implementation. So, the teachers came, they did the workshop, we narrowed down, we took all their 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 responses back, we further refined these activities and delivered them into a, a set of activities for these teachers to then implement um, and At the implementation thing uh, phase, you know lots of sorts of things happen, but you you got to be part of the feedback loop, so share with us a little bit about that experience.
0: So I, I was capturing mostly because I was just fascinated with how the pilot would go. <laughs> so I came here quite a bit. Uh, it wasn't hard to just fly in every every week or so to, to track what was happening for the teacher training, the professional development, development piece. Uh, happy to watch these sort of six hour sessions where the teachers would watch the videos and then, and then learn from past what the sort of pedagogical underpinnings were and why this activity ties to that standard, which ties to your age group. So that was fun. And then it was, it was satisfying to see the teachers, as you said, take ownership for, Oh, yeah. So, so my class, you know, my kids want this mm-hmm. and then another. And it was nice because the kindergarten teachers were in one part of the room and the third grade teachers were in another. And then it was this. There was some cross-pollination, but it was mostly between the groups. Like, oh, your kids would do it this way. My kids would do it that way. I was like, wow, these teachers, are now they're trading secrets, which was fascinating to see. Then for the classroom visits, which I was there mostly to just capture on video because I knew our funders (laughs) would want to see that story as we, again, tell stories for scale-up. But to have these little kids... Sort of freak out when I showed up in the room because I was like, "Oh no, yeah, like it should, probably would have been better if a just a regular camera person showed up, but for budgetary reasons, it was cheaper for me to just do it." And and it, but it gave me, but I think
1: the kids loved it. Yeah, right? well, it yes. gave them a the tangible connection.
0: It did because we one piece of which which I loved was the field trips. Like mm-hmm. that's the the videos are, are part one, the classroom activities part two. The field trips is part three and, and the family moments is part four, but we'll, we'll come back to that, I hope. But, but the field trips where you actually con- connect classroom to community by going to science centers and zoos and, and children's museums and parks, uh, that offers, I think, a lot of these institutions of science and learning are suffering right now because social media and screens as I said before mm-hmm. are taking over. So how do you get to like the kinetic experience of taking kids to a place like Kosai here in Ohio mm-hmm. or, or the Philadelphia zoo in Philly. So, so how do we, how do we embolden these community resources? And so that's why I was like, well, let's connect to them. So let's, let's have the kids watch, me go to a zoo, the National Zoo, in a video. Then they participate in the classroom to learn about pandas or lions, a hands-on. And then let's take them on a field trip. So that was a fun piece mm-hmm. for me to go on these field trips. These kids, again, all wearing their little explorer yeah. hats and running around being explorers, um, and and fe- feeling the like the completion of that cycle where they watch exploration, they practice exploration, and then they become explorers themselves. Mm-hmm. Which is again the, the underpinning of this this whole this whole model. So yeah, so I I love the classroom visits. I think it, it keeps you young to, to hang around with a bunch of five-year-olds, all five-year-olds or eight-year-olds, and I'm curious to see what happens as we scale up into, yeah. into older grade bands.
1: Yeah. And so, you know, as we we scale the program in, one of these days we'll have to have Mike go on one of these field trips because you've 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 not seen anything until you've seen, you know. 20 little explorers in the middle of the creek with crawdads hanging off yeah. the ends of their it was yeah. Josh. Yeah. Hat, it right? was spe- so. well, that was
0: when we knew we had something special is yeah. that when the parents were calling the teachers saying, yeah. what did you do with my kid yesterday? Yeah. Like, what did you actually do? Like they're coming home excited at a level that doesn't exist in a typical public school. And so I was like, wow, it's Let's keep doing
1: this. Yeah, and I think also just for the sake of transparency, so the the teachers and the schools that we participated with in the pilot, which represented just shy of 600 kids, so we're pretty darn proud of how many kids that we exposed to this program and utilized in the pilot to pull data. So, and they came from urban. From rural, from near urban, and, and including you know um, some 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 kids that were in a variety of places charters, publics. Um, so we had quite the variety of students participate by design, so that we could make sure that we were tapping into you know as much knowledge as we possibly. With
0: seventy could to ninety percent free and reduced lunch. Assistance. Exactly. So like these are yeah. these are communities that could really benefit from this type of programming.
1: Yeah. And I think that the other thing to keep in mind is it relates to the program, and and one of the big giant questions, both that you have to ask um, as a community contemplating um, pulling in um, new programming or funders or other communities even talking about should I engage in this is... There's, there's an intriguing gap that's happened in K-12 as it relates in particular to science and early science in the early grade bands. You know, in the heavy um, push and lift around literacies, both um, written and oral and mathematics, some things fall by the wayside. And what we know is that very few states and school districts actually test kids in science um, in early elementary school. And because we don't test it, it doesn't count, right? So what happens is that reading and math um, are happening in a vacuum with no context. And so that, that sort of native fun thing about school and elementary, and certainly as you, you move in, in, into middle school, because we've essentially um, tested that out of kids, that natural curiosity, we're, we're allowing it to, to, to be lost. And so one of the great things about this program is it allows you to roll through context, reading um, and mathematics back through that lens of science. And, it, and it's fun. All kids are natural explorers. As Josh has pointed out. So, as we think about then what happens and we get to, uh, to the sort of scale piece, one of the other pieces that was really important in all of this, and, and the question that you asked earlier, Josh, about what's this going to look like at middle school? And so, we created a whole set of these family moments or that opportunity uh, for the families to engage in this. So, talk, Josh, about why that piece is important, not so much how we did it, but, but the importance of that piece as it relates to long term scalability of this program
0: this the family moments I must give credit to the Bezos Family Foundation for that because they were specifically Jackie Bezos said, "How does this improve the communities that you're going to be in okay, how do we how do we bring this full circle so it's it's great that you're in the classrooms and it's great that you're getting kids to go to to zoos and to parks and to uh, science centers, but where does it where does it come into the nuclear family and shift that dynamic so that kids are sharing their insights and their experiences with their parents or their caregivers? And I was like, well, that's a, that's a, like a fascinating question. Right, and I was like, right. well, how do we crack that? now? like, how do we get kids to tell their parents, this is what I'm learning? And how do we get the oversight from caregivers to be tracking? Now, some of it, we're limited because of the timeline of our mm-hmm. pilot. Uh, and some of it, we're limited also because of technology and COPPA issues. Like we have to make sure that, that we have permissions with this young audience. But I think that with our scale up, we'll, we'll be able to dive more deeply into that family moment. Uh, inflection point where we can have kids and parents engage together. We did have this on two field trips mm-hmm. where parents brought their kids or really kids brought their parents, parents to the field right, trip. Yeah. And, <laughs> and we got to see this dynamic of like, wow, this is, the kid is now showing their parents what's exciting about exploration and what they're learning. But I would say in fairness, we just started to do that because mm-hmm. of the timeline we were under. Um, there's more. There's still much more to be learned. We, I, I'm a very. We got ninety percent of what we wanted in the classroom, and maybe I don't know twenty-five, thirty mm-hmm. percent mm-hmm. of what we wanted in family moments. So it's still TBD on that front.
1: Yeah.
2: Well, I'm hopeful that the family moment piece will be the enforcement of how powerful that experience and memory was. If we're really trying to expose kids to unique things in the world, if you can share that with the at that time, you know, mm-hmm. your parents, the most important and influential figures in your life. Hopefully, over time, the parents will be like, "Wow." he was super, she was super lit up about this. Mm -hmm. We got to go do more of that and Mm sort of reinforce that, that passion over time.
1: And our teachers did report back that they heard from the parents, they heard from families. So kids were clearly going home talking about this. Um, they were asking and wanting more. But I think the other thing, um, you know, that that we bumped up against on the family moment part part of the issue, of course, was timing on the pilot. You know, how much time we had to do X, Y, or Z. But the other piece of it is that a lot of that component needs to happen in not just family settings and i think that we have to be really mindful that that there's a mass variety and how one defines family and what family settings are and what family settings can uh, do uh, based on a whole host of circumstances. And so the ecosystem around creating opportunity out of a traditional classroom setting needs to be all-encompassing so that we can catch folks where they are. And so a part of that comes through creating partnerships with after-school programs, with our informal ed partners, in and around cities and communities. And That's a big lift, right? That comes back to that sort of community, sort of ethos, I guess, if you will. And there's a lot of work that has to be done in that space. And so one of the things that we thought about... um, for that was how do we take those classroom activities and recognize, for example, an after school um, program, a girls and boys club to tap into something that you, you're actively engaged in, uh, Mike, is that the we had to be able to make sure that those activities could be facilitated by a variety of folks. Um, you didn't have to be a trained teacher to be able to pull the program off, right? And also, we had to be able to bundle them in such a way that those moments could actually be tied together. And so that, I think, as we scale, becomes one of those key components that we have to continue to keep building. We did run the program in a summer uh, program experience at KIPP, which is um, a charter program that's national um, uh, school experience. Um, And in the summertime, we had uh, KIPP students participating in four weeks of programming tied to can we we rebundle those, add ancillary materials to them, and turn it into a program that a teacher, a school, an after-school program could, could roll multiple. Ways. It was very successful. So mm-hmm. Josh, you actually came in on one of those um, virtually, and the kids absolutely. Once again, it didn't matter if you were there in person or not. You know, ex- explore. Josh was there, so right. that was a big fun deal. Yeah.
0: yeah, it was fun. It was fun, and I, and I appreciate that the pilot is, has experimental. Um, pieces to it. So we knew we wanted to be testing the formal ed piece in classrooms, in public schools, but then we said, well, well let's add the charters and see mm-hmm. what that brings. And then we're like, what about after school? Can we do we want formal or do we want the more informal? And what about the education level of the people who are who are um transmitting the Explorer Large content? Are they trained teachers or are they volunteers? Mm-hmm. And so I, I appreciate that we were uh broad in our in our work for the past you know for the first nine months of the mm-hmm. pilot. And now as we scale, we can Go deeper into some areas where, where you say, oh, this worked really well and we've improved a little bit. Or this is, let's continue to, to explore and experiment. But yeah, any anytime I can use leverage technology to come into a classroom, uh, yes, yeah, sign me up. Yeah,
1: I'm, I'm exactly. There. I'm there. exactly. So let's yeah. talk about scale. Guys. Yeah. So what what does scale look like? What happens now? Where, where are we?
0: So uh, so our research report was delivered to our, our funders uh, a few months ago. And we just heard a few weeks ago what our plan is in terms of what cities like beyond we're always going to stay in ohio like ohio has proven itself to be Ooh, yes the <laughs> test kitchen. exactly yeah Go this, is, this is this is this <laughs> is like we call the test kitchen because the the chefs here are going to be cooking and preparing things and experimenting with things that don't get pushed out to right. the other right. test kitchens or restaurants depending on how we you know, <laughs> metaphor that. but um but we are looking for a number of other cities partner cities uh, hotspots to to partner with and and bring our content to. So uh, a short list, uh, we look, we've had many meetings in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. uh, some in in San Francisco. We, we want we want to have a, again, similar to how we had urban, suburban, near urban and rural, we want to have distribution across the country in ways that give us access to more populations than just urban centers. But we do want to bring XAL, that's the shorthand for Explore Alert, <laughs> we do want to bring XAL into more than just Ohio. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. and, and so we're looking at national partners. I like the public, private and national, regional, local partnerships for funding. So, so we're looking for a national funder who would say, yes, we would challenge these communities to, to match our funds. And then we would look for like the Schott Foundation and the Columbus Foundation in Patel. We look for regional and local partners to say, You know, sign us up. We Mm -hmm. want we want this to happen in our schools, to our kids, and in their community. Here, same with the science centers, Mm -hmm. ASTC, the zoos, uh, AZA. Like there, there are organizations that where we dovetail very nicely, so we know what the resources are. It helps us if there's a zoo, if there's a science museum, if there's uh, an aquarium. It Mm -hmm. helps if there's a park system that we don't have to have such a high level of entry, where you have to have a giant building that's you know multi million dollar facility. As long as you have a creek. We right. can talk about ecosystems. Right. So well, we try to get engagement from the classroom outside the walls into the community. So we want to make sure that, that we have that piece. And then, and now, I mean, I just got back, as you know, I was in the Gulf last week talking to people in the UAE and in Bahrain about scaling this into mm-hmm. other countries. Mm-hmm. And again, it's more about the mindset of how do we prepare a future generation to be science literate, right. compassionate leaders? Exactly. That's not an American thing. No, That's a global it's a thing. global thing. So,
1: absolutely.
0: So our scale-up opportunities are going to be a combination of where do we think we want to go based mm-hmm. on the demographic or psychographic, and then where do people want us to come? So mm-hmm. if, if a community reaches out and says, we have the schools, we have the political will to make this happen, we have hopefully the financial capital to invest and make mm-hmm. this real, because it's, it's, it's not a cheap endeavor to right. create all this material uh, and to execute it well then, you know, we're, we're, we're open for, for those conversations.
1: Can you, can you imagine a, a world, um, Mike, where you walk into an elementary or middle school and you ask the question, what are you learning in science and random schools in and around? And suddenly you hear about this guy, you know, explorer, Josh, and, and, and that we're, we're off doing these things. Is, is that possible in your mind?
2: Sure, I think now more than ever, with the ability to distribute content to anyone almost around the world, is remarkable. I mean, we're at an unprecedented time in history, so I think, uh, and which is one of the reasons we got involved. This is sort of the confluence of the future of learning, mm-hmm. and I believe we can scale this in so many different ways. And my job is to help this group swim downstream. And find the ways that we can really find the right currents to jump in, and and make sure we can scale strategically, thoughtfully, and hopefully impactfully.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I I know that collectively everybody is really looking forward to doing that. And I know the past team is just anxious to start building kind of the next pieces. And um, you know, as we think about um, what what's. Scale looks like, and sort of where or what happens with it next. I think that it's also sort of sort of fair to share that you know we started in those those lower grades. There's there's a great need around um, science exploration, and and one of the pilot outcomes, you know, sort of added to the lift. Quite frankly, um, for you, Josh, as it relates to creating that n- next set of the video content, you know, there was a, there was a there was a sort of clear feedback from the teachers that you know the the K1, 2, sort of three space and the needs of their video moment versus the needs of the kids that are going to be five, seven, nine are going to have a little bit of different twist on the content. And so, sort of adds to, to your burden a little bit. It's all the same shoot, but you, you think about them a little bit differently. And, and as the program does um, scale and start to flesh out, the other hope, of course, is that the content interlinks across so many different disciplines and it becomes this sort of robust thing that ultimately gets built. So as communities think about this, um, and whether it be from, you know, creating new innovative science um, curriculum or any other programs that come to them. So what, what might some parting shots be from each of you? You know, as you think about, you know, sitting in my hat, I'm a teacher in the school. I'm somebody who has just heard this podcast and I either want to bring Explore It to my community or I want to think about doing this myself. What's the one thing that you want to, to leave folks with to think about before they sort of leap? You guys just jump in. It Doesn't matter who goes
0: first. Well, f- f- based on what we learned here in Columbus, I think one was what was the most one of the more exciting takeaways for us, for me, was that the, like, the folks at Cosi and at the Columbus Zoo and at the Franklin Park Conservatory were like we have access, like you can come here and you don't mm-hmm. have to go to the Smithsonian only, Correct. right? You don't have right. to film at the National Zoo when you can film at the Columbus Zoo right. or the Philadelphia Zoo, or you, you can go to the Exploratorium uh, in San Francisco. There are regional players that should be part of our content design. So that what what we like about it is like kids would be, it means it's that there's a deepening, a deeper level of engagement when kids watch you go into their community. Mm-hmm. And say, oh, wow, he came like." He came here and filmed that. Like he was in our museum, he was in our zoo, right. and so that's where where I was like, oh, originally I was like, well, I'll do this all through the Smithsonian, or I'll do it through NASA, or I'll do it through NOAA, which are great institutions that we'll continue to work with. But to be able to lock it into regional experiences, so that kids can watch uh, me and then again future me's other hosts go into regional resources, these these treasures, and then tell stories. So so if there's anyone listening that says, hey. We have a science center that right. I'm on the board of, or I'm, on, I'm helping the zoo try to figure out what our campaign is for next year. Yeah, we could do some content. We have a python that no one has. Right. or you know, like, Then help us tell that story because we can bring that content not just to your schools when we come into your city or, or your towns, but we can also then share that content with the world. the world. So the kids like in Bahrain, where I just was, will be watching something from San Francisco and go... Yeah, now there's an international connection as people kind of realize that science, curiosity, problem-based learning is a global phenomenon, not just a regional one.
1: Correct. Absolutely. Mike?
2: Yeah, I'll piggyback that a little bit and say the beautiful thing about this model and the art, really, of this team is that it's a customer-driven approach, right? I mean, we co-create with our teachers, with our kids, with the institutions, uh, and with the families. And I think that is really impactful and powerful. And it's our job to make it easy to implement, really fun to implement, and make it aligned with what you're trying to accomplish, whether that's in the classroom or outside of the classroom. And if we can accomplish all those things as a team, uh, hopefully any community that wants this will be able to implement.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it's been so much fun and it's um, it's truly been a privilege and a joy so I you know on behalf of, of PASS certainly thank you for letting us uh, be part of the journey and I also want to thank both of you for making time uh, today and to coming in and sharing the story of Explorer at Large uh, we're looking forward to seeing what it does next so thank you so much
2: thank you that was fun thank you
1: thank you for joining us for Learning Unboxed conversation about teaching, learning, and the future of work. I want to thank my guests and encourage you all to be part of the conversation. Meet me on social media at Annalise Corbin and join me next time as we stand up, step back, and lean in to reimagine education.